Here, I'll just, I'll just go ahead and click record and we'll see how this goes. Um, how do you pronounce your last name, by the way? I forgot to ask, is it? Yep, Hassan. Hassan, okay. So yes, welcome everyone to episode number two of, uh, what's my podcast called? Oh yeah, I Kissed Alcohol <laughs> Goodbye. That's right, I'm still waking up. Um, I wanna welcome Ashley Hassan. She is in Norwich, Connecticut, correct? Let me make sure I get that right. And she is the host of Sober Girl Podcast. And I just happened to come across that, you know, I'm, I'm eight days into this podcast, Ashley's thing. So like this was last week, I'm watching a Joe Rogan podcast and he's interviewing Snoop Dogg. And within in the 30th minute, within the third minute, they were smoking blunts, which was hilarious. And then at the 30th minute, the Snoop's like, I want to get drunk. And then I was like, this, why is there not a podcast? Why that, am I watching this? <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, I got, I'm getting triggered. I like, I got to turn this off. So then I just had this idea and I didn't even start looking around for other podcasts. I just started one. Cause that's kind of how I am. I'm like man of action. You can see, even though I'm tired, I've, I've got like natural, I'm, I come naturally caffeinated, but I add to it. So <laughs> um, anyway, enough about me. The just I, I just wanted to tell everyone like how I came across your podcast, uh, which is at, you're on Instagram at Sober Girl Podcast. When I post this, I'll put it in the link and everything. Um, we'll link whatever we can to you. Um, I ordered something from Ashley's Etsy shop. I'm going to give her a shout out. It's this really cool uh, Mother's Day gift that I can't uh, I can't give away in case my wife watches this or a birthday gift. We'll see which one we choose to use it for, but welcome. Thank you so much for uh, being here. And um, I guess, you know, so you don't have to tell your whole story again, unless you want to, you can talk about whatever you want here, but the thing that's, you know, you've got such a compelling story of, um, I mean, there's just a lot of pain starting early on. You talked about your parents' divorce and how that happened in an era when, you know, parents didn't do that, you know, it's a hard enough thing anyway, but then parents also, when we were kids, did things in less healthy ways than they do them now. And it was, uh, it just, it really traumatized you. And you feel like that maybe set the stage for you um, later on for alcohol. Did I, is that kind of, was that kind of the start of it? I have like a theory. So my theory is that it's partially genetic. Um, I have alcoholism on both sides of my family, my mother's side and my father's side. And then I personally feel like it's your makeup, right? It's how you're brought up as a child. It's how you're conditioned as a child. I was conditioned, you know, when I was 10 to just grow up and help my dad. And that really did a lot for me because I felt like I had to keep everything in. Like my feelings didn't matter. My brothers mattered, you know? So I felt like I was put last. What I said didn't really have any fruition, right? Like, I don't feel like my parents ever listened to me. Um, I have a very, I don't want to say complicated, but kind of, I just choose to really not communicate with my mom that much. Um, and that's better for me. So I think it's, you know, how you're brought up, how you're viewed. My dad was so sad about my parents getting, about them getting divorced that I didn't even feel like I could cry. And I've had a really hard time, like in my adult life, learning how to cry in front of people. Like it's, it's really, I'm embarrassed. Like that's how it makes me feel. And I, you know, that's how I was conditioned as a child. So I feel like I just at an early age just was like, okay, I'm just going to push my stuff down. Cause my stuff doesn't matter. I'm not going to deal with my stuff. So eventually that caught up to me. Yeah. And that's, you know, I was just saying on, uh, through the, the reframe recovery app, I, I feel like I'm not a paid influencer for them. I swear, but like, I'm going to mention them a bunch just because this app is helping save my life and a lot of other people's lives. And there are so many resources out there from, you know, you talked about AA as part of your, as part of your journey and then, you know, other, it, whatever works for whoever, but this one has definitely worked for me. And, um, I got connected with this group of, uh, lady it's, it's actually all ladies and me. Um, it's like six, six ladies and me. And so I've got like six sisters that I kind of text with on a daily basis. And we were just talking about talking yesterday. I was having kind of a, a rough day and I was telling them, I wish I could just cry. Like, I, I just, I wish I could do this and I can't. And I think for me, you know, the early trauma was losing my dad, um, at age 19 to lung cancer. And we were super close. Uh, and, and from then on, then I went into the army and it, as an army officer, like you just, you can't show emotion, but I'm a very emotional person. So I just learned how to like suppress that stuff 
And I'm sure that that contributed to me, you know, coping by drinking later on. And so um, as you went on into your young adult life, so you've been, you worked a lot in the restaurant industry. Um, and then it, that just seems to, if you, that's where like your access really increased or your just exposure to alcohol on a daily basis kind of increased. Right. And then you felt yourself on a, a slippery slope as a, remind me, were you in your late teens, early twenties or later on than that? I, when so that I didn't drink until I was 26. Okay. That's, so that's right. Yeah. The humongous part of my story is I drank very seldomly before that. Um, when I was 21, I was actually sick. So I didn't even like drink, didn't get drunk. Um, I never got drunk before I was like 25 maybe. And my ex-husband like liked wine and stuff like that. I just never really was into alcohol. I was always very careful because of my dad's history. And my mom's brother was a major alcoholic and was really abusive. So I just didn't know what would happen to me. And my dad like definitely had like a So he had anxiety, I have anxiety, and he had a really hard time showing his emotions. Like he got very angry and I was like that as well. So I was really nervous about what would happen. You know, I never, I never hurt anybody. Thank God. That's just not part of my personality, but I was just really careful. And I never drank at work until much later on. Um, I would just go out and socially drink with coworkers. And in the beginning it was fine, but I was going through a divorce and it didn't hit me like right when I went was going through it. Um, I was in the middle of getting a promotion. So I was really careful and trying to like maintain like a really good distance in the restaurant industry. It's very hard to do that. Like, you know, you do unfortunately create bonds with the servers and it's, it's really hard to really put a gap in that. And, you know, I never really did the early twenties thing. So at 26, I was acting like a 21 year old and being really irresponsible and it wasn't really out of control in the beginning. It was very controlled. It wasn't all the time. It wasn't, it was like a once a month or something. It wasn't anything that I was like, okay, I have to look into this. And as time went on, it just got a lot harder to manage. And then it just, once that divorce hit me, it hit me probably right after we physically like a year, the year date of our divorce, it's like everything hit me all at once. And I never really processed that until I got sober. Yeah. I remember you talking about on the back end of it, you said all at once, like years and years later was when you started to feel things finally, but that was like way after all of this and what an easy way. I mean, I only worked for a couple months um, summer when I was 21, before my senior year of college, I worked at a steakhouse and I remember going out with the, the, you know, the other servers and some of the cooks or whoever, and, and the store manager, we went to a bar like right next door to shoot pool, play darts or whatever. And, um, it, it, yeah, it's such an easy way to get kind of sucked into that. And I know that there are folks on some of the Instagram chat groups that we have, um, with the connections that I've made that people work in, work either in in and around bars, they're musicians, or they work like you did in the restaurant itself. And it can be just such an easy way to get on that, on that path. And so then as you went forward, um, and things started to deteriorate, remind me when was the, it it took a while for the D for the D first DUI to come in, right? Um, Not really that I got divorced in March of 2014. My first my DUI was, I want to say like a year later and it wasn't, so I want to preface it by saying I just made a really shitty decision. Like it wasn't, I wasn't drinking as much. I was working for somebody and the bartender just made the drinks like insanely strong. And I thought I could drive home. I got pulled over like a quarter mile from my house. I remember you saying that part. You're like, I live 40 minutes away and I get pulled over like right next to my house. And then it was just, it just seemed like things just like one thing after another, you just like kept catching bad breaks. But you, one of the things that jumped out at me that you said in your story, this is the first full episode of her podcast, by the way, it's Ashley's story, the episode, season one, episode one, where she just tells her own story, which is fantastic. you said that, um, oh God, I'm so ADHD. I forgot what I was going to say. You said that, um, let's see, you were coming home and then it was like bad break after bad break. And you just, um, oh, you said, 
it, once you get in this mindset, you don't even think of, think twice about doing illegal things or doing risky things. And that was me five weeks ago. I'm like crashed. I like, I had to leave the house for a few days because we just, I just couldn't communicate with my wife. And I just, I like, we needed a break. And so I stayed at this hotel that's close to my work. I work only 10, five to 10 minutes away anyway. But I remember drinking in the hotel and I'm like, ah, oh, whatever, I'm fine. It's only two or three miles and there's never any traffic down here. So whatever, you know, and here I am, the person that's like mortified of dr driving drunk because I drove blacked out one time when I was in college and I realized that I could have ruined my entire career. I could have killed someone. I could have killed myself. And so for 20 years, I had not. And then I was in such a place after this six to seven month relapse where I'm drinking, 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 and it's, and it's increasing that I started making these decisions that were like, there's zero logic involved in it. So could you tell me a little bit more about that part of once the, after um, the first DUI, it seemed like it sort of like snowballed. Yep. So I was really, um, it's not much money to get your license back. And I just had it in my head that it was, I never reinstated my license until re until I'm fighting now. This is the first time I've legally tried reinstating it. And it was so easy. Like it would have been, you know, breathalyzer in my car, which at the time, I think, I don't know. Cause you're, so my license was suspended for like three months. So I had moved in with, I had roommate at the time, moved in with a friend of mine. He was just like, okay, you know, I just want you here so I can like, you know, whatever. But again, it was like, I was going out and drinking, but it wasn't like detrimental. And then I had like totaled the car, like before that too. And thankfully didn't get any crazy charges for that. And I was able to like, I got the money back for that. And my uncle feels really bad because he, he helped me get that car because my life had started like spinning out of control because once I got the DUI, I was like, well, why am I going to pay my car payment? Like that's dumb. So I had like been so behind on my car payment. They came and like took it when I was asleep right from my house. Cause my address obviously was on the paperwork. And then my uncle was nice enough. I found a car, he paid for it. And then, um, I, he, he, to this day feels like he enabled me. And it was, that was the very beginning of everything. Like it got much worse. And so legally, and I've read a lot about this. So basically what happens is, is your brain, there's like a, it's a chronological disease. So it's a brain disease that a person who is an addict has, unfortunately, and it can stem from mental illness, childhood trauma. So imagine I had both of those things, you know, I have anxiety super bad and I have a shitload of trauma that I never dealt with. So those things together, and I have a very active mind. So like alcohol, just like took myself down. Like it took my personality down. It took who I was as a person down. I didn't have to think I didn't have to feel. And I hated feeling like I hated it. Cause I didn't know how to process my feelings. So I just kept kind of doing my thing. And it's crazy because, you know, my friend let me drive a car and didn't like, didn't make me reinstate my license, which I wish that that had not happened. I wish he was like, no, you need to reinstate it. Like it's, it's $75. Like why? Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. Like why as a person, I wasn't like, oh, okay. And I was a really responsible person. So I was like, why, why is this happening? And then I, I drove like that for so long and I drove like that and only got stopped when I got my other two DUIs. Only time I got stopped. I never got stopped. I was, I'm a very careful driver, but mm -hmm. like I said, it's mind altering. Like I knew I was drunk, but at that point, your mind, your inhibitions are gone. You're the part of your mind that is supposed to help you make good decisions is gone. It is, it is so cloudy up there that you go and you make these horrible decisions and you don't think about at the time I could hurt myself. I could hurt somebody else. I could ruin my life. I technically feel like my life was ruined by those decisions. Did it lead me to sobriety? Because I was at a point where I had to think about what I did in a sober mindset. Absolutely. But if I could go back, I would take, but that's the only thing I would take back would be me driving like that. Well, and you said that it, you know, you, you talked about this at the beginning of your, uh, of your story, uh, in that episode about how, you know, it was, it was going to jail that helped you like get sober. Um, mm -hmm. and that some people might say, well, that doesn't really count like, of, well, you didn't have access to it. And you're like, well, okay. If you've ever been to jail, which I, which I haven't, but I've been around like in, enough with friends that are police officers and stuff and just experiences in the army and stuff that like 
I know that you can get, you know, when, when I was in Afghanistan, I mean, like you could still get booze. I mean, if you wanted to, um, you're not supposed to, but it, it was easily accessible there. You were saying if you trade food or whatever. So, you know, my, my question, I guess was, you know, or, or my, my comment uh, in relation to that was just, do you think it matters how, like what it is that gets you started on the sober path or is it just every person's story is going to be a, a different and you just need to start wherever you're at. Like for me, it was the hotel room when I hit like, like seriously, I had given up. I was like, I'm, I'm done. I'm fucking done. Like I, I can't do anything else. I've been getting knocked back down for the last several years since we got out of the army. I keep getting back up. I mean, I literally got knocked down. I got sucker punched at my job and had my jaw broken because I work downtown in the inner city. I mean, it was like, it was like a soap opera. Right. And I finally was like, I, I quit. <laughs> so you know, it was the cheap hotel room that apparently something good came out of because I found this app and got connected with this community. For you, it was going to jail. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and how that started your actual sober journey? Because leading up to that, it sounds like you were like, oh, uh, maybe I maybe I do have an issue. But you kept kind of like, nah, nah, I'll, I'll figure it out or I'll be all right. But what was it about the jail that really changed things for you? So when all of the alcohol was out of my system. I was like, I have a problem. I have a problem and I need to fix myself. How do I do that? What's wrong with me? Like, why am I doing this to myself? I literally should not be doing this to myself. I'm worth more than this. What is going on? And I really sat there and thought about that. And although there is another, my, that you can say that that's my rock bottom, but my rock bottom wasn't the fact that I was in jail. Okay. And that sounds really horrible. I had gone to jail for like 10 days prior, like a year before and came out. And after a couple of weeks started drinking. Oh, again. see, I got it mixed up. I thought that was the one. So it was the 20, you said your sober dates like April 3rd, 2019. Right. So there was a, there was the 10 day jail for the, from the previous May year. Of the, May the year before. So it actually so, wasn't the first trip to jail that, that did it. It was the, it was the second one where you turned yourself in because your parole officer had said, Hey, listen, I can't like, I, I can't fudge this anymore. Like you've got an issue and you've got to get my, yeah, my probation officer was like, I have to violate you. When you get violated, you get arrested. And then the court will either like let you go and say, okay, this is what's going to happen. Or they're going to be like, okay, you're going to have to do jail time. And then there's like this process. So I turned myself in and I contemplated going to rehab before I had actually called multiple rehabs that rejected me going there. Ugh. And I was like, all right, that's cool. And then, um, and by that time I was like, just, I was drinking a lot in those three months because I got the last DUI in January of 2019. So I was just like, I knew I was going to jail. And I think I knew in the back of my mind that I was going to come out on the other side. I think I just knew um, they call that, you know, divine intervention, right? Like I was, I think in my mind I was there, but I was so clouded by everything. And I mean, I drank all the time. I mean, like to the point where, you know, if I didn't have people who cared about me, I definitely probably would have been homeless. Okay. So when I was in jail, I had really had time to think about all the things I did that I could remember doing and my brothers. So I helped raise my brothers. So there's just a different bond for me. I was no longer allowed to see my two-year-old nephew. I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't see him because I didn't know if I'd be drunk or sober or whatever. And I sat there and I was like, I don't want to lose them. And that's what did it. Do you think that the, that the family or the people, so, so that was the thing that made all the difference was at, at the end, because for me, it was, I, I kept, you know, in this last relapse last summer to the winter it was like, why am I doing this? I love my family. You know, if I'm willing to die for them, then why can't I live for them? I remember that from when I did IOP a year and a half ago. And that quote really stuck with me. I'm like, God, I, in the army, I would die for people in a heartbeat. Of course I'd die for my family in a heartbeat. And I know that, you know, these other guys that, and gals that I served with in the military would have died for me. And I know that my family would do that for me. So how is it that I can do all those things, you know, for my job, but I can't do it for my, my family what was it, but your family was sort of there all along. What do you think changed? Cause I'm still not sure the reason I'm asking and sorry, I mean, keep talking about myself, but I'm still trying to process like, what was it that was different about five weeks ago, five and a half weeks ago when I was like, I'm leaving the house and I, I don't know what to do anymore. What was it different there? So what was it different for you? It was the, it was your nephew that was kind of the that turning was a lot point. Of it, right? um, because 
I mean, I've always loved the fact of being able to have, like, I have a lot of brothers, so I knew I would be an aunt. And I had aunts when I grew up that were so precious to me because my parents weren't really that great. So they were like there for me and I wanted to be able to do the same thing. Okay. And it was a mix of that, but it wasn't none of them besides that brother. And that was really stemmed from my sister-in-law. It wasn't my brother because there were instances where, you know, he was told not to talk to me and he was like, I'm not going to do that. So I, I don't think my family, I think my family would have gone to a point where they would have been like, you know what, we can't do this. But I think they unfortunately realized that there was a problem and that they knew the person I was and they knew I wasn't that person, but they just kept a distance. And, you know, that for me was just too much, but I think it was, you know, a mixture. I think it was that. And I think it was just, I was tired. I was exhausted and I was sad and I needed to figure out what was going on and be able to deal with it so that I could keep living, which is like what you're saying. You're saying, you know what? I need to be here because my family needs me. Right. I want to be around my family. So I think that's where you can draw that connection. Yeah. And, and I get, yeah, as you said, the exhaustion, that's, that's, I think the exact word that, that captures it for me. I, it was, I'm just so tired of trying and, and I just had given myself the grace last summer. I'm like, I'll give myself the grace to just have a drink. You know, I should, you know, damn it. I'm an adult. I should be able to have, you know, a drink if I want to, even though I know like we've, I've done this enough times that one, one is (laughs) one or two drinks always turns into three or four, you know, and then three or four a day or, you know, one or two once a week turns into one or two a couple times a week. And then it, for me, it would turn into three to four was always the slip was like the tipping point for me. Like when I got to the point where I could have three or four a day, it was like, well, what's, what the hell? I'll just finish the six pack. You know, it, 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 and I was just so tired of trying and I, and I let myself start. And then I just, it, it, it all snowballed from there. So exhaustion was the thing. And you feel like it was the, your family who at some point in that deep, dark place where it was at least one person, but in your case, some, you know, a, a, a community of people that really helped you help motivate you um, when you had that heart, like you had the no choice. And and again, I'm not minimizing your sobriety from jail, but like you, you had this crucible type experience where you're like, I'm going to jail and I'm not going to drink while I'm there. And you, and I remember you talking about, you know, when your head cleared and when you came out on the other side, you said your cravings really have not been that that bad when you came out because and I'm so glad you said that because for me it's like I, I don't really have a lot of physical cravings and I'd be like well that means I'm not really an alcoholic because I can because I can quit whenever I want or whatever so tell me more about that what was it that how did you know coming out of jail that that was it that it was different this time I don't I don't, I never really truly I think tried I think I would stop for like a couple of weeks and I would be fine I didn't I was more of like a binge drinker and would get drunk like when I drank rather than every day so my withdrawals I didn't really have any okay. um I remember my leg feeling kind of awkward but I mean those I'm t- I'm really tall so like those beds are really small so I just figured okay I'm like scrunching up at night or yeah. something like that it's nothing yeah. you know that has to do with anything like that and you know like they have nurses that come around like your first like you know a few days to do you need anything for withdrawal, whatever? And I was like, no, no, I'm good. So basically I think it just clicked for me. I was journaling like every day I worked. So I was pretty busy when I was in jail and I talked to only like two people and I just really worked on myself. I journaled. I, I believe in God. So I prayed to God. God is not a part of my program. Um, I believe that God definitely had a, opened a door, but I, I've done all the hard work and I'm not, I'm not unfortunately going to give anyone else that credit but myself. So I feel like that's how that works. And I didn't know what would happen because I knew I didn't have cravings when I was there and I had to do like this outtake. And she was like, so you're still sober. And I'm like, yeah, like (laughs) you talk me if you had the desire to use, you would. And alcohol was the only part of my story. I've never I had a traumatic experience when I was a kid with my mom. My mom has serious back issues and she had, I'm assuming it was a fentanyl patch and she would always forget to change her passes, her patches. And I actually witnessed her having a seizure 
and was like, I'm never even, I barely even take ibuprofen. So I'm very against like medicine. So, or any kind of like pills, any of that stuff. So I knew I would never do any of that. Even if I couldn't get alcohol, I would just stay there sober. Like I didn't, there's, I wouldn't go looking for anything else. So, I mean, I came home and I really didn't know what to expect. I was really overwhelmed with the feeling of coming home. I was really excited to get my freedom back, but I was really, really overwhelmed because I was a people pleaser. So I didn't want to come back and continue to be in this role. And I chose to come home and barely tell anyone I was home that I had people who were mad at me because they were worried that like I wasn't alive, you know, because I didn't tell anybody. So, and I slowly was able to let people in. There were a couple of people I talked to and that was it. And then when I was ready, I kind of integrated these relationships and I, I just, I think I knew in my mind that I had to do some really hard work before I could get there. And I knew my recovery needed the emotional recovery. I knew that that's what I needed. So I did that. And my story with AA is kind of weird because I did, there was only one meeting I could go to. I didn't drive. The other meeting was too late. I worked at night and I wouldn't be able to get home. And then with my work schedule, it just didn't work out. So I went to this meeting who everyone in the room was like 60, 70 years old. And I definitely didn't feel like I belonged, but I was like, okay, I'm really going to try this because like my family really wants me to do this. So I was like, okay. And then it it didn't do anything for me. It made me feel very uncomfortable. And then the second day I went, they had me like talk or something. And I was sober by myself. I didn't use any kind of AA. So pretty much I just got hammered by the people in the room. I left and never went back. And I was like, okay, well, I know I have to do the steps. Like I have to figure out a way to do that. So I had a friend of mine had told me about Russell Brand's podcast on the podcast, it said how we wrote a book. I went to Barnes and Noble and bought the book and did all the stuff work through his book. And I keep that book. That book is my everyday chip, every month chip, every year chip. And I love how relatable the book even goes and goes like, okay, well, this is what the big book says, but this is how you can relate it. And it also went along with that podcast, right? Because he was doing the podcast and promoting the book at the same time. So it was really easy for me to get through the book. And he, I like the way his mind works. He's a very unique individual, but I really, really love how his mind works. And now he talks like a lot about other things, but he just hit 19 years himself. Well, and it's, and one of the things you said about AA, and again, I will never bash, I don't mean to bash AA, um, like you don't, like you weren't bashing AA in your podcast, but you talked about, you said, you know, a chip doesn't really mean anything. And that's not saying that chips aren't, aren't meaningful for people when, when it works for them, but you were saying like, you know, you can, you can go outside and, you know, you can, you can get the chip and then go out and do whatever you want. It really, it, no matter what, you know, you've got to, you've got to do the work. Um, you've got to go through the steps of whatever program it is that you're in, but you had said you, ha- you firmly believe I I'm going to paraphrase, but I think you said you firmly believe that you have to do a program. Um, and I remember, cause I'm like working on, the, I remember exactly where I was. when you said that I was working on the dishwasher, which keeps leaking stupid dishwasher. And you said, I firmly believe that you will not get sober on your own. You have to do some sort of program. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So people get really confused about that. And a really good example is my husband. My husband is sober, did not do a program, but so this is where my view of it kind of has changed. He did do a program. He just didn't do it through a book. He didn't do it through AA. Mm -hmm. You can go through the steps. You need to be willing to do the emotional recovery. And that's what step work is. Step work is literally emotional recovery. It's saying, okay, there's something greater than me. That's helping. That's going to help me stop this. And I believe in this. I mean, a higher power can be a plant, a bottle of water, a a little elephant charm. Like it can be anything. Mm -hmm. And that step work opened my eyes to all the things I did to other people, to what I did to myself and how I really was going to fix myself. And by apologizing, a lot of people think that amends is for the other person. It's definitely not. It's for yourself. And so I really firmly believe that. And my husband had a lot of things he had to work through. And I use him as an example, because even though he feels like, you know, he doesn't want to share his story because it's like not crazy like mine. And it's not, you know, this, it wasn't like this crazy thing that, you know, got him sober, but he had to deal with a lot of stuff and work through a lot of stuff in that first time frame. And he chooses running as like his thing that he does to maintain it. So he's a very avid runner. So people can go through the steps and not even realize it. And really 
I personally believe, you know, there's certain steps that are more important than others. Like, you know, the, you know, releasing yourself and accepting this. I mean, that's like, that's what you do when you get sober. Right. So I think that, you know, they're really like key four steps and there's something called smart recovery. They only focus on those four steps because that's emotional recovery right there. And if you don't do the emotional stuff, it's not going to last. And that's, and I firmly believe that because you need to figure out your why and your why you can't just sit there and be like, okay, well, like Ashley, why did you do this to yourself? Like, it's so much more than that. And there needs to be questions asked to like, kind of get to the bottom of that. And I just firmly believe that that program is made to help you through your emotional recovery. Yeah. And the more I discover, you know, I was trying to, I was trying to not drink on my own and that was on purpose because I just went into a place over the last couple of years where I just stopped. I just, I just stopped trusting people outside of my own home. Um, and I just kind of, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big energetic extrovert and, and I'm, you know, if you worked in the restaurant industry, especially as a manager, you're probably a people person, or if you're a social introvert, then you just, you had to interact with people. I, I got to a place where I just was like, I'm done. And I think COVID gave me the excuse to just and losing my job and then being at home. And it was like, I'm just going to isolate myself. But as I've gotten connected with community, um, you know, I got on this reframe app, I downloaded it on January 6th. Um, it was new year's resolution time, you know, and, um, actually stayed sober for a couple of weeks, but then, you know, I, I was just looking for an excuse to, to go back to drinking and by the middle of the month, I was, you know, back to it, but I started logging my drinks and I started attending these daily zoom check-ins uh, and listening to other people share. And I was like, camera off, not sharing. And if you were drinking, I was, I just happened to be attending the abstinence meeting. Um, they have like a cutback track and then they have an abstinence track. And so I had, I apparently signed up for the abstinence track. And so I kept going to the abstinence call without even realizing that there was another one. But as I listen to people sharing, I'm realizing that it's not so much, I, at least now, a couple months later, we're having this conversation, I'm realizing it, it, I've been beating myself up over the physical part of it. Like if I'm really an alcoholic, I should have cravings. And maybe that's part of me reading the big blue book. And it seems like, you know, the way that, again, I'm not picking on AA, but, but it seems very black and white to me. Like either you're a medically addicted alcoholic, who's going to have delirium tremens if you stop drinking or you're, or you don't have a problem and you don't drink. Like if you take that one drink, it's going to go all the way over here. And I felt like I'm not there. So I'm like, I don't think that I have a medical addiction yet. I was definitely on the road to it. And thank God my labs came back. Okay. Last month for my liver. I'm like, okay, I got another chance here. But my point in this whole ramble was to say, I'm realizing that the majority of this work is emotional, even for the folks. I think, I mean, now this is me projecting because, you know, I don't have the medical addiction part, but I have a friend who, you know, had to go to detox. And I think for him, it was, you know, it wasn't once that alcohol was out of his system, like you're talking about after the first 72 hours, 96 hours, whatever it is, you know, then it was the really hard work of trying to love yourself on my desktop. I have a little electronic sticky note that says, I saw it in somebody's Instagram or somewhere. It says the goal isn't to be sober. The goal is to love yourself so much that you'll never want to drink again. And so, you know, how have you continued that emotional work. Cause when you say you were in jail, you had time, you had 23 hours a day time to write and think and reflect as you were getting clean. So it's almost like your body was cleansing itself with the alcohol, but you were cleansing things by writing You were cleansing the, the head and the heart by writing. How have you continued and sustained that sort of momentum? Because where I'm at is, I mean, I'm a writer and I, I do better when I write, but the last couple of years I stopped writing too. So how can I, and how can other people who are just starting, um, cause you're coming up on three years here in about 10 days, oh, congratulations, third. Yeah, which thanks. is amazing. How have you sustained that? I know you said that the physical cravings haven't really been an issue for you, but how have you sustained the emotional, the, the self-love recovery part? Um, like I'll think about alcohol, so it's not, I just don't crave it. Um, so I'll think about it. And when I think about it, my mind immediately goes to bad things. I'll have like flashback or I'll remember something I did. And really that will just deter me. And I'm like, Nope, this is my path. Like, this is where I'm at. And I'm fortunate because I do have another person who, if I ever did have a craving, like he would do whatever he needed to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, a very firm believer in therapy. I've been in therapy since month 10. 
And that's really important to me. Like when I first started, I mean, I was going to therapy like twice a week. Now I go every other week. Sometimes if I do feel like I need one midweek, um, my father passed away last year. So I do have some issues uh, with that. So it's not saying, you know, I'm here and I did all the work and now I don't have to do anything and I can sustain it. That's not, that's not the truth. So journaling is always good. I try to be, do a couple of times a week, just do like a gratitude check-in with myself. And my sobriety is the first thing I write on that list every time. And I don't prompt myself to do that. Mm. I don't do it on purpose. And, but that's my number one. That's number one. If I, if I wasn't sober, I wouldn't have the relationship with my husband that I do. I wouldn't be able to be an aunt to like all of these kids that are my nieces and nephews. And now I have nieces and nephews who are you know almost adults on his side. Cause he's a lot older than me. So it's really about knowing what you need for yourself and how to balance that out. You need to make time, unfortunately, for the healing. You need to heal yourself and I'll be healing forever. So you need to do that in whatever way it is. Like if you don't like to write, talk into your phone, go into your notes, talk into your phone. There's other ways. A lot of people, I think, just like kind of shut down ideas they don't want to do. Therapy is a good thing and it might take a while to find the right therapist, mm-hmm. but it's definitely worth it. So I continue therapy. I try to do gratitude check-ins. I still journal. I just try to do that. And and just being in the recovery community helps me a lot. I have so many friends that I've made on Instagram who I've never met in real life. And really, I know that they can be there for me if I'm having like a hard time. And the only thing I really have a hard time, unfortunately, is with, um, I get like these bouts of depression, like these days because of my dad's passing, he died very fast. Um, so it's, it's a little difficult, but you kind of just, you know what you need. You need to, you know, if you're, I, my anxiety makes me like really on edge. So when I'm getting like that, I like take a step back and I'm like, okay, what's going on? Why, why am I feeling uneven? Why is this happening with me? And writing is a really big tool. Things that, you know, I do often too, is I love to read. So I read like regular books, like a fun book I want to read, but I've also dived into a lot of Brene Brown books and she's amazing. Um, and untamed by Glennon Doyle is another really, really good book. It's on the top of my to read list and I just haven't gotten it yet. It's on the other sticky on my, on my desktop right now. That book is like, and anybody can read it. It doesn't, it's not like a gender book, you know, people think because you know, she's a woman and she wrote it. It has really nothing to do with that. It's just her outlook on how life is. And it's just so different and about the roles in society, right? Like the roles in society are like men are supposed to be strong and men are supposed to be like these strong human beings that just hold everything together. Well, you know what? Men need to cry too. Like men need to feel too. And by doing that, you're doing what like my parents did as I was a child, you know, just saying, you know, okay, like we just need to move through this and we're not going to deal with anything, you know? So I think that's really important. I think it's important to know what you need and to know what you need to heal. And when you're already in a relationship, like you are, and you get sober, I think there's a big difference, but I think you also need to have a partner that really understands that that journey is yours alone. Even though my husband and I are both sober, our journeys are so separate. Like we just, I maintain it a different way than he maintains it. Mm-hmm. And it's just different. Like he will never talk about his sobriety like ever. And I am just like wanting to talk about it all the time because if I can help one person, then that's all I want. So I think that there's a different way. Like when I was in the beginning of sobriety, I refused to date. And then I remember I dated for like, I tell people that come to me and are just getting sober. If they are not in any kind of relationship to stay single for six months, because they need to put themselves first and love themselves. And if you don't love yourself, you cannot love another person. It's impossible. Uh, There it is. Yeah. And I've realized all along, even back in my, um, my days as a a pastor and an army chaplain, it was, you know, there, there's, uh, something Jesus says about like, you can't, or, or, you know, um, or, or the, you know, it's the golden rule or, or it's love others as you would want to be loved yourself. But that implies that you love yourself first. And I, and I would preach this, but I never practiced it. It's so hard. And, you know, I think one of the things that I'm learning how to do is the, the gratitude piece that you touched on, you know, I, I get the honor and privilege of homeschooling our three three sons, they're 14, 11, and seven. And, you know, having had such a great re- relationship with my own dad and losing him, I'm like, God, I don't want, you know, I, I managed to not, I managed to not do the, uh, the nicotine stuff like you did, which killed him. But here I am, you know, midlife, you know, potentially drinking my, myself to death. And I want to set a great example for them. And the way that we, 
I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to show them how to, how to love yourself in spite of being imperfect and to, you know, that that has to be the start of it all. And we start our homeschool day with what are you grateful for today? And uh, just as a reminder to all of us that even when things seem rough, like, listen, we've got, a, I've got a roof over my head. I've got people around me that I love and who love me. And yeah, I'm frustrated about whatever's going on, but if I can focus on that gratitude um, and my, my doc, my, I've got two docs, you know, my, my, uh, my trauma psychologist and I were at the VA and I were talking the other day and he talked about, in the army, you have what's called a pace plan. It's your communications plan. It's primary alternate contingency and emergency. And he said, your, your primary task, your primary thing to do is for communication is, um, to take care of your sobriety, to communicate, to take care of yourself first. Uh, and, you know, that, thank you for sharing that. Cause it just reminds me that in order to sustain this for the long haul, I can't, I think I was, uh, and probably to a certain degree still am expecting my wife to, to say or do certain things to support me in this, that it's just, you know, she and I are different and we process things differently. And I can't expect her to, you know, help me the exact perfect way that I want and need to be helped. It's like, I have to help myself first and I have to be able to connect with others or, or connect with myself by journaling or whatever, and to be grateful. And it's not that I shouldn't lean on her at all, or she shouldn't lean on me, but I just can't expect her to be, you know, and I can't even, I, I've got a complicated relationship with, with God at this point. So like you, what you said earlier really resonated with me too, which is like, I can't, um, you said, I'm not going to give, you know, anyone the credit, but myself for, the progress. And for me, it's like, I'm not going to depend on anyone. I'm in a place where I'm like, I, I can't depend on anyone else, but myself. And, um, you know, so thank you for sharing all that. Cause that was real helpful for me. And if someone's really stuck in that deep, dark place, that whole, uh, that solitary confinement of, you know, self-hatred, what would you say to anyone who's listening or watching, uh, if they're in that place now, how would you encourage them in that, what they feel like is the deepest, darkest place right now? It takes a lot. You need to want a better life. You need to want to love yourself. You need to want to do the healing work because that healing work is what's going to get you out of the dark place. It's going to, every time you do something, it's going to shed some light into your life. And whether that is a guided therapist or whether you do decide to do that on your own, I think Instagram is an amazing community to reach out to. And I think, like you said, community support is really important and it shouldn't be anybody, you know, that's a big fact. It should not be, you know, it should be somebody who is not going to be on your side. It's, it's, it's hard stuff. You need people that understand that. And that's huge. And that's why I don't talk about bad, badly about AA because I like the support group part of AA. I just think AA is a very old program. And I think it's, for people like us who think very grayly, it's, it's difficult. It's not, I can't, I can't sit there and be like, okay, black and white. I'm not made like that. So I think you really need to dig inside yourself. Think about what you need. Remember that finding a therapist is not easy. Sometimes you need to find like the perfect fit for you. And, you know, don't be afraid to say your therapist says you have like anxiety and you feel like that's uncontrollable. There are normal ways to do that, but medicine is okay. And some people need that. And I would just urge you to look for self-help books that have to do with your situation. Therapy is like, I can't stress therapy enough. Therapy changed my life, changed my life. So I, I just suggest going on that healing journey. Okay. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, for someone who has, for someone out there, who's trying to connect, maybe you've tried to connect with a therapist or you've tried some of the things that we've talked about and you're still feeling discouraged, it could be a medical, it could be a medical thing. And I remember one of the times that I have cried since I left the army was when, you know, my doc said to me, Hey, have you, or my, my, I started with the social worker at the VA and he was fantastic. He sat with me very patiently for a year before he could get me to admit that I had trauma, that I had issues that I needed to deal with. Um, and part of that, he said, you know, have you ever, um, you know, have you ever thought about maybe you know, talking to a doc about some meds. And I remember just feeling crushed because this guy's like manly man. He had been a Marine staff sergeant, had two Iraq deployments. And this is the kind of guy that, you know, I really, I mean, I'm, I'm older than he is, but this is the kind of guy that when I was in the service, like totally looked up to, even if I, uh, especially if I outranked him or her, this was like the, 
tough, you know, but he was so tender and was like, Hey man. And my dad was a Marine. So, you know, and, and was, was tough, but tender. And that's how when my, my first uh, therapist said, are you ready to think about maybe some, some meds? And I, I, it just, I remember crying afterwards. I texted my wife or told her, I just feel so crushed. I feel so defeated. And here I am a guy who was an army chaplain whose job it was to encourage people and to tell them there's no stigma for getting therapy and there's no stigma for meds or whatever it is that you need. Like I, you know, the meds have, have helped me and I don't think I would be where I am. I mean, God, I'm looking back now, like I'm 42. Oh my God. I should have had meds for ADHD like 30 years ago. (laughs) And that probably would have helped me all throughout my military career uh, just for the ADHD, which, you know, can be totally comorbid or whatever the medical term is with PTSD and with alcoholism and they can all feed on each other. So I'm just going to piggyback off you and, and uh, try to encourage any listeners or viewers to um, try to not beat yourself up and just ask the question. Maybe you don't need meds. Maybe you'll talk to your doctor and be like, no, I don't. I think that, you know, clinically you're, or medically you're, you're okay. But even if you do, whether you do or you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It might feel like it matters, but it doesn't really matter. And if you're going to try to do this by yourself, it's, it's not going to work. I, I know Ashley knows and so many other people that I've met know. And I will say also to piggyback and then I'll pitch it back to you, but there were, when you talked about Instagram, listen, I despise social media. I have left social media three or four times. And I'm sure that all my face, my old Facebook friends were like my five or 600 Facebook friends or whatever it was were like, Oh, Dana's leaving Facebook again. He'll be back in a year or whatever. Cause I kept getting sucked back in by my jobs and stuff. But this Instagram thing, when you said it needs to be people that you don't know, a people that's separate from your community actually helps me that I'm able to connect through my app, my recovery app, and through Instagram um, with people um, either intimately or people that I don't know. Um, you know, I've got sober in Boston, sober in Cleveland, sober in Dallas, and all these wonder, wonderful, wonderful people. You got Sober Girl podcast that I met and get to. I actually um, run Sober in Connecticut. Yeah, that's it's it's awesome. And I just was blown away as I got on there and I got to see how encouraging and positive this community is. And you know how many people I know, at least I mean, maybe some people that I've followed or friend or whatever the hell it's called, you know, maybe I know them and or they know me, but I don't I'm not aware of anyone that I know. And that has really helped me to to feel like, yeah, I'm not anonymous. At first, I like didn't share my name, but I, you know, I didn't even want to put my picture. And then I'm like, this is silly. Like I, I'm just going to connect with these people. Um, and here I am doing a podcast. So like it, I, I'm out now, like it's, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's out there, but I just wanted to piggyback off what you said to say that like the Instagram community, I'm blown away by just how, how great it is. And how has that helped you with your, where, where did you kind of start doing the social media piece? Was that always a part of your, your story or, or just recently? No, it, um, so in June, I, had to start the process of reinstating my license, which was very frustrating. Um, I've gotten like jerked around. They say one thing, they say I need something Then I didn't have to do that thing. I paid for it. So it was just like a lot of back and forth. And I said to my husband, I'm like, I want to document this because, and that's how it started. It was, I'm just going to go on TikTok and document this. I made a TikTok and just document me talking into it, basically just saying, okay, this is the process of you're in Connecticut. This is what I'm doing. And I could have done half of this stuff before June 25th. So I was super frustrated because I had called the DMV a couple months prior and said, look, is there anything I can do beforehand that they'll need? Nope, nothing. I could have done half of this stuff beforehand. Oh, so right. I was and it's a prolonged process, but almost a year since I did this. So, so that process, I was like, I looked at my husband and said, if I wasn't so secure in my sobriety, I would relapse. And I was 100% honest with him with that. I would literally relapse if I didn't have this stability that I created for myself and him, because he was like really my punching bag, right? I was just like, I would freak out my anxiety. I would have like panic attacks over it. And it, it really enraged me that the DMV was treating me the way they were, because even when they talked to me on the phone, they were rude. She wouldn't, you know, she's supposed to answer my emails half the time she doesn't. So it was really frustrating. And so I, I started there and then I want to write a book. So my therapist was like, okay, well, you're going to have to tell Matt's family, like what happened to you? Because they just know you don't drive. Like they don't know anything. His parents knew a little more than everyone else. 
So I was like, okay, yeah, like maybe you're right. And I told my one sister-in-law and she was so just compassionate. And then that just opened something. And then I had a conversation with one of my husband's friends and he was, I was like quickly doing all this community service before the end of my probation because of COVID, I couldn't do it. They wouldn't let me do it until like really close to the end of my probation. And I was so angry. I had to quit my job to do it because I literally had to finish 250 hours in like six weeks. So I was literally, all I did was go to community service. Like it was insane. And I was just so burnt out. And I came over to his house one day and I was just like, so angry, like so angry. And I really think it was just emotions of what I did and how I got there. And he, and I've never told him anything about my story. And he was like, you know, this is a safe place and you can talk to me anytime. And that really just, after that, it just spiraled. And then I was like, you know what? I really want to share this. I started doing what I call recovery meetings on TikTok. I wanted to go live and I had like 93 followers and you can't go live on TikTok if you don't have a thousand followers. So I created a TikTok that went completely viral and I started doing recovery meetings every single day. My husband was in a crazy schedule last October. Um, he works at a power plant. So they go into like the shutdown a couple times a year. So he was barely home and I was like, this is what I want to do with my time. And I got so comfortable and I was like, okay, if I can build here, maybe somebody will contact me for a podcast. I had like no information. And then I met a gentleman named JD and he was like, oh yeah, let's Skype. I can tell you exactly how to do it. And I created the podcast. Well, and you paid it forward too, because as soon as I saw your podcast, even before I, I just listened to your very brief trailer and I, I was like, this is fantastic. There's someone already doing this, um, you know, and that you've been doing it for, for a while now and have like dozens of episodes. It's, it's wonderful. And when I saw that you were um, doing that, you, you know, I sent you a voice message, which I thought was really cool on anchor.fm. Uh, we'll give them a shout out to unpaid just because I set up because of you, I saw that. And I had, I didn't realize again, I'm 42. Like I'm still learning this, this social media and this like online stuff, you know, I was teaching my parents about how to use your computer in the nineties. Now i got my 14 year old, like building computers and being like, dad, stop. No, you got to put this here and you got to go to this site and whatever. But I, I realized that, um, anchor links to Spotify, which was on my to-do list anyway. And so you helped me with that. You reached out to me right away and sent me a couple of voice messages back. Hey, if you ever need anything. And I was just blown away by that. Um, by just the willingness of people to give and just, you know, eight days into my podcast adventure here. Um, I, I can tell you it's been powerful for me. I, I, I told my inner circle text group that I feel like, you know, I've really got mixed motives because part of it is I just, I like the sound of my own voice. I mean, I'm, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know myself, but I feel like I'm doing this for me as much as I'm doing it for anyone else or even more so. And maybe that's not a bad thing because in the last eight days, I've thought more about this podcast than I thought about beer. I've thought about, you know, what can I do to, to get this going and, and taking care of it and doing something that's going to keep me focused outward, whether it's geared towards sobriety or not. Do you think that that it, finding, finding something would be, is, is what people need to do. Maybe they're not going to get on Instagram. Maybe they're going to start a podcast, but. I absolutely think being, of service to people will 100% keep you in the right headspace. 100%. Like I talk to people who are sober all the time. I, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm picky, but I haven't, I haven't interviewed anybody in like really early sobriety because they, unfortunately they don't show up to my interviews. So I like reached out to a couple of people and they wouldn't show up. And I really wanted to talk about that because I feel like it's really important because like my, the beginning of my journey started almost three years ago. And um, some of those feelings and emotions, I don't really remember. It was like, some of it's a blur because you're going through so many things at one time. And, you know, I find it's really important for people who are in early sobriety to really document what's going on with them. Because I think that's really important to help people, you know, okay, I need this. Okay. I need this. Okay. Well, I relapsed. Like, what do I want to do? Like when I have people, you know, people message me and I tell people to message me anytime. Um, I, I will talk to anybody. And I think that just being in service does really help me remember things that I did, but also the service part is just huge, huge. Yeah. And I, you know, we got a few minutes left here and I, I want to ask you, um, what would you say to 
the dudes who are listening or watching because um, the Instagram community that I found is predominantly female. And there's, and, and even on my, my reframe recovery app, it seems like it's about three to one, four to one um, women to men. And that's not bad. Like I said, I'm in a text group with six women. It's fantastic. I've got like six more sisters than I already had. Uh, and it, and it's, and already within a couple of weeks, I feel like I, I, I trust them like family. But what would you say, you know, being married to someone who is um, going through his own recovery process, what would you just say to, to the guys who are out there um, before we, we close? I know I kind of changed, shifted gears here at the end, but for some reason that's just jumping out to me to like say, what would you say to the dudes? Cause I've got male guests coming. I just, uh, my first few uh, episodes here are, are females and that's brilliant. And I'm so thankful for everything you shared, but what would you say to the guys? Yeah, I think there's a big stigma, just kind of like we talked about, about the roles of men and women. And I think that men tend to just suffer in silence. And I think that's really sad. And I would encourage them to just create a platform and just figure things out. Use the hashtags, like all the sober pages, like hit up the sober women. Just the thing I think with me personally that I can talk about experience with, I think that women in general are careful with men just because of things that have happened, the way that society is. And as long as you're respectful, we're going to open arms. Like the second I heard your voice, I can like read energies and feel energies. The second I heard your voice, like I knew you were just a good person. And I was like, I want to help this guy. So that's all you need to do is just open yourself up and know that it's okay. And like ask somebody for help, even if it is a woman, like there's nothing wrong with that. And I think, I think it's right. I think it's, it's interesting because alcoholism is supposed to be a mainly male dominant and it's not at all. And I think that a lot of men maybe just go to the meetings and go to the rooms and they just, they don't talk. And I think they really should. I think just try, you know, dig inside yourself and find that point, find your passion. I'm so passionate about it. And I think that you are too. And I think like, don't be scared because you will find, everybody will follow you. Women will follow you. Men will follow you, you know, and you'll just do what you feel is right. And don't be ashamed to talk about your story. Well, I'm really glad you said, you know, what, what's going to be most helpful for me, I think, from this conversation at the 36, 37 day mark, whatever I'm at, is to, doc, to keep documenting. Because yesterday I had my first alcohol-free beer since, um, since the summer of 2003 in Iraq. <laughs> I had this warm Budweiser NA that was horrible. Uh, and you know, it really, it, it kind of messed with me yesterday. I mean, it was, it was, and, and there were some other things going on at the time that were not triggers, but I just, it was, it really kind of screwed with my I head. Would love so to like, talk about that because I was very against it for a long time. But like when I hit a year, I was kind of like, oh, I kind of want to try alcoholic wine, but like a non-alcoholic, but I'm, I wasn't sure. And then my husband and I got gifted. He was terrified. He didn't want me to try it. He thought it would trigger me to drink yeah. regular alcohol. Yeah. So we had gotten gifted it by our neighbor because she normally gave my husband wine. When she we connected, she had found out that we were both sober. So she gave us um, that. And I can say the first sip was really weird. <laughs> it, <laughs> it for was me, it was weird. <laughs> yeah, it was bizarre. I mean, it was like the the sound and the touch and it, and it was like a sweating can too, you know, and so and I don't usually drink hoppy. I, I didn't usually drink hoppy beer, but this was kind of like a hoppy ish sort of thing. Uh, and, and when I, it just smelled and tasted, it was so, it was so weird. I was having this. Most of them are really, really similar. There's one that I have a really hard time drinking. So I just don't drink it. It tastes exactly. I loved Sauvignon Blanc. It was like my favorite and I got one and it literally, it had 0%. So it's even less than like the one that we had gotten gifted. And it was so close that it was like too close for me. So it's some things I am against and don't know about it and other things I'm okay. Like a mocktail you can like for, you know, people who like that type of thing, I mean, get some mint, muddle it with some fruit, put a little bit of sugar in there and some seltzer and you call it a day, you know, like there's so many things that you can explore with that won't have like that taste. Like if you have a, I go to restaurants and get virgin mojitos all the time. Okay. And they just replace it. I say, can you just replace alcohol with seltzer? And they're fine. And I love it. And it tastes okay. nothing like an actual mojito. So because that rum is taken out, 
for me, I don't think I will ever try non-alcoholic vodka, tequila. That is like too much for me. I think that's, I think that's mainly for people who like a different thing. That would be wicked triggering for me. I wouldn't be able to deal with that. The non-alcoholic wine that we like, I'm okay with. When we went to Europe, there was so much and it was so good. And my husband really enjoyed it because we went during New Year's Mm -hmm. and we were able to also feel like a part of the environment and not be like over in the corner drinking water. Everyone had a wine glass. So it was nice that we were able to find those options, but be careful. Some of it can be really triggering. And if you're not ready for that, it could be an experience (laughs) for sure. I think. I think it was, I'm glad I went ahead and tried, but like, I found myself like cracking three and four because I was just kind of stressed out yesterday with the damn dishwasher and everything that was going on. And I'm like letting stupid stuff get me aggravated. And I'm like, shit, and I'm, and I'm having another one. Like it's going to, it's going to do anything, but, but all those neural pathways, you know? So thank you for sharing that with me. And thank you for sharing mocktail. Cause I want to end every episode with a mocktail recipe. Yeah, that, that's great. yeah. So what's your, you mentioned like the virgin mojito. But yep. what would be another one? You said the simple one would just be mint and some muddled fruit and seltzer. What's another yeah, one? Yeah, so I make a, um, I actually make my own simple syrup. So simple syrup is just equal parts sugar and water. So like if you use a quarter cup of sugar, put a quarter cup of water. I actually put mint right in there. You can use mint, basil, uh, rosemary, whatever you want, thyme. And I use, I use mine. I'm a big mint lover. So I boil that all together. It boils super fast. And then you let it cool, put it in a container, put it in a glass. And then you use an ounce of that. You put regular mint in there, muddle that together. And then if you want a fruit in there, you can. And then you do seltzer. And then on the top, I do a couple different things. Um, you could get the syrups that are in the store. So like coconut syrup, there's pomegranate, peach, Amazon has them. Or you could do something more natural. I use, um, so San Pellegrino, I use this as blood oh, orange. Oh God, that, oh, that one is so good. That's my favorite. That's so my favorite kind of San Pellegrino. Like a splash and it's delicious. I have palm juice too. Palm juice makes like a few different flavors too. Just like a splash to give it like some flavor. But if you don't, you can use the seltzer, but just use, if you use plain seltzer, I would do a little bit more of the simple syrup just to give it like that sweeter taste. Okay. And you can use peaches, you can use pears, you can use, I mean, anything really. So just get creative with it. Just yep. have fun. Yeah. On my Instagram, I posted, my very first post was my first attempt at a mocktail and you know, it was, it was good. And then I made some that look really terrible, but they taste okay. I <laughs> just get creative. I'm like, what the hell? And I'm so glad that you held because that can was sitting there the whole time. And that is my favorite kind of San Pellegrino that I have not had. And so instead of doing more alcohol-free beer, I'm just going to go back to that because I totally forgot about it. So thank you. I go you. back and forth, to be honest, like around the, you know, around like New Year's. And then even when we were coming back, we were still getting it. And then I go through phases where like, I just want to, you know, do seltzer. I try to drink regular water. So I just like a seltzer, like that's really sweet. So it's really good. It like kind of quenches that yeah. sweet that you have. Yeah. Like I crave the sweets a lot in the beginning, like cupcakes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely have had some transfer addictions and I love caffeine anyway. So I definitely went like toward back towards monsters and stuff, which is terrible, but I'm like, I'll allow it. It's okay. I didn't drink today, you know, and one of the, my favorite people that my first episode, um, I hosted a lady named Vonda and she said <laughs> the things that stuck out to me. Um, one of the reasons I really started to pay more attention because she said she's like 10 days ahead of me in this in the process. And she was sharing one down the app and she goes, I'm, I was so triggered on the way. Home. I said, you know what, Vonda, just you can do what you can eat, whatever you want tonight. You can eat a fucking cheesecake if you want. And she, she said, so I'm going to go home and get a fucking cheesecake. And it was so funny. And so like, <laughs> but whatever you do, as long as you don't drink, there was another Instagram post that said, if all you ate this week was fruit gushers, but you didn't relapse, then that's okay. Like it's going to be that way in the beginning and just give yourself some grace there. Right. A lot of it, a lot. So cravings, a, a lot of people need to know this cravings only last for 20, 30 minutes. 20 minutes. I learned that on our app. That's so, crazy. What you do is you literally just have to occupy yourself. And as long as you can occupy yourself, have 10 people on your call list, call all 10 of them until someone answers and talk to them for 30 minutes, 30 minutes. It's easy to have a 30 minute conversation. There's so many other things you can do besides go and pick up. So I urge you to really look into that, like books, like a TV show. Yeah. I mean, you can literally, there's anything that you can do. And having that support group is, is, I think it's fundamental. 
we've, we've had, a, there's a, a, one of the ladies in our group was sitting in the parking lot of a liquor store and she sent like a 911 text. Hey guys, I'm about to do this. And that, you know, it, and you know, Vonda, who I talked about got on and I can share this on Vonda's behalf because she's talked about it, I think even in our, so she said, I just, she got right on the phone and called her and made sure like stayed with her, made sure she heard the sounds of walking like her front door opening so she could verify that she was at her house. So that, that community has been key for me. I'm so grateful that every, you know, I'll, I'll end on gratitude and say, I'm so grateful for, for you and for just stumbling across your podcast. I'm going to link it and, um, do, you know, we'll post this and give you shout outs wherever I can. And I hope that we'll continue. I'm sure we'll continue to talk. Yeah, and if course. there's ever anything I can do to, you know, to help pay it forward or, or yeah. I'll definitely be picking your brain on the podcast stuff. But, um, yeah. Thank you so much for taking an hour plus to talk. And I, I feel like, man, if we didn't have homeschool to start, I'd just talk to you for another hour because yeah, this I is know. fantastic. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. This is Ashley Hassan up in Norwich, Connecticut. And uh, she kissed alcohol goodbye on April 3rd, 2019, coming up on that three-year mark. Congratulations. Yeah. And thank you. And um, give her a like on Instagram at Sober Girl Podcast. And check out her Etsy stuff because it's super cool. All right. So (laughs) have a great rest of your day, Ashley. All right. So I will sign off with my thing. I say goodbye, alcohol, and hello, life. Take care, Ashley. Uh, Bye. Thanks.